We're going to take some pit stops ourselves, and we are taking pit stops in the Psalms. Hopefully, so that we can take stock ourselves and uh, give thought to our ways and uh, spiritually be refueled and re-energized. And the one thing I can guarantee is that we are going to be stopping a little bit longer in the Psalms than that car did there in the pit stop in the video. But why pit stop in the Psalms? Why not pit stop in the book of Habakkuk or in Jeremiah or Revelation or maybe Lamentations? Well, men and women throughout history have come to the Psalms for comfort during times of struggle and distress and very often find in the Psalms their own words, as it were, the words which echo what they are going through in their lives at that time and give expression to their emotions and to their thoughts. And when you read the Psalms, the Psalms are, are, are full of praise to God. They're full of words of adoring love. They're full of words of um, great thankfulness because of um, his faithfulness to us. But in the Psalms, we also find other emotions such as doubt and anxiety and anger and frustration and confusion and apprehension as well as confession, which is why I think that the words of the Psalms relate to us so well. They speak powerfully into our lives. And the writers of the Psalms are real people. They're real people like you and me, pouring out their true feelings, asking God for his help in times of trouble and times of distress. And the Psalms remind us that even in the tough times, God is our provider, he is our protector, he is our refuge and strength, he is a strong tower, he is a shield and a deliverer, and he is our God. And over the next five weeks, we're going to pit stop in various psalms. And um, I want to just tell you this up front. Don't please expect some detailed study as we have when we go through the New Testament books. Because this series is not so much a, a mind thing. Yes, our minds are going to be engaged. Of course they are. But it's going to be a heart thing. And uh, it's more about getting refueled and refreshed and re-energized than understanding the finer nuances of New Testament theology. And this morning we're going to take a start uh, to our journey. And we're going to start with the best loved of all the Psalms, which is, I imagine everybody would say the same. It's uh, Psalm 23. Words which have brought great peace and comfort and inspiration to countless people over the last 3,000 years to Jewish people, to Christians, to Muslims, and to people of no particular faith, especially during times of bereavement. I would like us, if we may, to read Psalm 23 together. And uh, we're reading here from the New King James Version this morning. So would you do this with me, please? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. 
Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. And this psalm is attributed to King David, a former shepherd boy who looks back on his youth and likens the relationship of a shepherd to his sheep as the relationship between himself and God. And in the five opening words of this psalm, we have a sermon really, or many sermons in itself. And each word is actually very important there. The Lord is my shepherd. Um, the shepherd is everything to the sheep. It's a, a guide, a physician, a protector. And the idea of this metaphor is of God's meticulous care and concern, security, protection, guidance for his people, that the shepherd is at all times desiring that which is best for the sheep. Jesus referred to himself, didn't he? The good shepherd who sacrifices his life for the sheep. And uh, Jesus also told the story of a shepherd who had a hundred sheep and he left the 99 and went out to look for the one that was lost. And when he found it, he called a party, called all his friends together to rejoice over that which was uh, lost but is now found. And uh, we all know that that story wasn't about a, a dumb animal that we enjoy with mint sauce. <laughs> that story was about people people who have lost their way in life, and a God who seeks them out. And uh, that whole meaning behind that, uh, that story that Jesus told is that he is a God who goes after the one, that he is personally interested in the one. He is personally interested in you. He is personally interested in your loved ones. As Peter writes, God is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is my shepherd. David's trust is not theoretical, it's personal. He doesn't uh, write, the Lord is a shepherd. Now, if he had written, the Lord is a shepherd, he would have been perfectly correct in doing so. It would have been acceptable. But he writes, the Lord is my shepherd. And what he is saying here is if he was a shepherd to no one else, he is a shepherd to me. He cares for me. He watches over me. He preserves me. And I think that this offers a, a massive challenge to all of us here this morning. And that challenge is, do we have a, a relationship with God? Can we say, my shepherd? You see, there are two ways of believing. Put simply, we can either believe with our heads or we can also believe with our hearts. Uh, James says in his, his New Testament letter, chapter 2, that even the demons of hell believe. The devil himself believes. Uh, in the sense that uh, the devil and all the demons of hell know and believe in the existence of God. The devil is not an atheist. But it is possible to believe intellectually and not truly have a relationship with Jesus. And in this church, 
we have a desire to teach people so that intellectually they will understand what the scriptures say. But we don't want to leave it there because we want people, you, to come into that relationship with Jesus Christ. So the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Not maybe, not possibly, not perhaps. But for David here, there's no doubt, there's no uncertainty. And the challenge is, do we have the assurance, the certainty of the, and the assurance and the security of God's love? Maybe that you're someone who just comes into church and you enjoy being here, you enjoy the, the singing, you enjoy the friendship with other people, but are you certain of the assurance of God's love in your life? Such an important question. The Lord is my shepherd. Who is my shepherd? Well, the answer to that is none other than God himself, the maker of the heavens and the earth, the one who threw stars into space, the one who created all that there is. He is the one who is our friend, our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Not a Lord, not one amongst many others, but the one and only the one whose name is above every name, the one before whom every knee one day will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue shall confess. I told you there was uh, probably five sermons in that and I've gone through it in less than five minutes, but not the end, the end is not yet. So let's uh, look at these verses together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures he leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's, his name's sake. Now, I think that this is such a, a wonderful metaphor that God knows what is best for us. And his desire is that we should, in our lives, experience restoration and renewal, that we should be having refreshing, times of refreshing, and if we are really honest with ourselves, much of the time, I'm sure you would you'd agree with this, that we are more like mules than we are like sheep. That we resist the guiding hand of the shepherd. That we struggle and we strain to do our own thing in our own way. When his desire is to bring us to those best places where we can be fed and watered and renewed and re-energized. The king James Version says, he restores my soul. It's really interesting to read that phrase in other versions of the Bible as well. In the New International Version, it says, he refreshes my soul. In the New Living Translation, he renews my strength. And in the message, you let me catch my breath. How wonderful is that? And it may well be that you are here this morning and it may be you didn't want to come but you just came out of a sense of duty or maybe because you've not been around for a little bit and we'll be asking where you are. You'll be going into my little black book or whatever. I haven't got a little black book, is it? But you see, in this place this morning, it may be for you a place where you can just come and catch your breath again. 
that maybe you need to spiritually recalibrate. And if that's you, then, well, you're in the right place at the right time. And we will take opportunity, if we may, to pray with you later on. That you too might just come to this place of refreshing and restoration in your lives. And I think that the first step, really, in that process of restoration is acknowledging that things are not brilliant with us. And you might have experienced, you may be going through that now. I've experienced that, certainly, in the past. And it's great to be in a place where you can come and receive from the Lord through, through others. When you meet a friend or a colleague, you, you greet them. And there are many ways of uh, greeting another person. Hi, how are you doing? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. That's rather formal, isn't it? If you drop the good and say morning, it becomes much more informal. If you're Welsh, well, good morning would be bore da, or pronoun da for good afternoon. No star for good evening. Or if it's just uh, someone that you meet all the time, it's shumai. Isn't that right, dear? Some people greet each other in other ways. Nice to see you. Long time no see. It's been a while. How are things? The greeting depends on many things. It depends on our own personalities, but it also depends on our relationship to the person that we're speaking to. Are they a close friend, a work colleague? Is it your boss? Is it an employee? Is it the queen? Then it's mam, not mom. Isn't that right, dear? Right. And I just wonder... If this week you have been greeted or if you have greeted someone else with these words. How is it with your soul? <laughs> Hands up. How many of you greeted someone this week with those words? How many of you have been greeted by those words this week? You're not very spiritual, are you? You see, those of you who will know something about uh, church history will know that that was the greeting that was used by the early Methodists. And at the heart of Methodism in, uh, during the life of John Wesley was the Methodist class meeting. And that was in the uh, early and mid-18th uh, century. You say, well, what was this Methodist class um, meeting? Think life group, but more intense. And uh, it was incredibly innovative, actually. It was cutting edge in its day. And these classes came together. They were essentially discipleship groups where members were accountable to one another. And when the group came together, they confessed their sins to one another. And they prayed for each other and they encouraged one another to love and to good deeds. And it was here that the Bible was unpicked and unpacked for them, that they could truly understand what the scriptures were teaching and then were motivated to go out into the world to teach, uh, to, to practice what they've heard, sorry. And John Wesley encouraged this transparent authenticity amongst the early Methodists, which was characterized really in this question how is it with your soul? And the early Methodists asked that of each other. 
And I think that these guys, these uh, early Methodists, certainly have an awful lot to teach us modern-day Christians. Uh, they weren't just Sunday attenders or every-other-week attenders or once-a-month attenders. They were people who had committed themselves to one another. And they opened their lives to each other and they became vulnerable with each other before their brothers and sisters. And they became accountable also to one another. So imagine this morning, if after this service I singled one of you out and I said to you, how is it with your soul? Some of you, as you're doing right now, you're giggling rather nervously. Some of you might say, well, this is the evidence that we've been looking for for many years now, and we've finally got proof he's losing his marbles. <laughs> Others would probably be quite uncomfortable with those words. And you say, well, to ask those sorts of questions, it's not politically correct. It's not a polite question. It's none of your business. That's between me and God, thank you very much. I know that you're a pastor, but don't get so personal. The question, how is it with your soul, I think probably would be received in much the same way as asking someone, how is it with your sex life? That said, I think it's a jolly good question. Uh, that is, how is it... <laughs> that is, uh, how is it with your soul, not the other one? That's a good question as well. I'm not, I'm not going to ask it, though. We're not that kind of church. Where was I? Right, okay. Yes, move on quick. <laughs> um, some, some Christians uh, argue theologically and, uh, over human beings and say that uh, human beings are, are threefold. They are body, soul, and spirit, the trichotomous position. And some other serious Christians argue that uh, Christians are not trichotomous, they're actually uh, dichotomous in that their body and the word spirit and soul are just used interchangeably. So who is right? Well, if this question has kept you awake at night, <laughs> yes, get alive, that's fine. <laughs> um, I am going to sort out this dilemma for you once and for all. Good Bible-believing scholars believe that the threefold division is what the Bible teaches. And good Bible-believing scholars believe it's the twofold division, what the Bible teaches. You see, both these groups will use Scripture to argue their position. And my words to you, you decide. We're not going to kick you out of the church as a heretic either way on this. It's not really important. But what is important is when I speak to you this morning of soul... I'm talking to you of the, the inner person, the inner man, the inner woman, the real you, the spiritual part of your being, the part of you which will uh, live on beyond death. And when I were to ask the, um, the, the question, how is it with your soul? What I would be asking is, how are you doing spiritually? You see, I know many people and some of them are in full-time Christian ministry who serve Jesus with great fervor, with great commitment, with great passion. And yet I know them to be falling apart inside. They would never think of walking away from their faith. 
They would never think of disowning Jesus, but they are running on empty, fatigued. They've lost the joy of their salvation. And one pastor recognized his own struggles and he wrote these words. I want to get to the finish line still in love with Jesus, still in love with the church, still in love with being a pastor, with my head held high, with my dignity and honor still intact. I want to look back over my shoulder and say it was all worth it. When I read those words from Lance Witt, I found them wonderfully authentic. You know, he was just sharing his heart. He was being realistic with the struggles that he as a pastor is going through. And sadly, as I look back, many of my friends who started out on the journey with me into Christian ministry over three decades ago, didn't care or didn't take care, should I say, of their relationship with Jesus. And in time, slowly, their lives started falling apart, their ministry fell apart, their marriages fell apart, their families, their lives. And some of them, sadly, have no contact whatsoever with church any longer. And some of them have lost all sense of dignity and self-respect through extramarital relationships. Deep sense of shame. There are some who once walked on a journey with us here in Tamworth Elim Church. Last uh, autumn, as you remember, uh, Julie and I shared our 25th uh, anniversary being at the church here and it was was a wonderful day and uh, Dan put together a video of um, those who were baptized over the last 25 years it was seven minutes long it was hugely inspiring and seeing the hundreds of people who had been baptized in that time but you know what it also made me incredibly sad because some of those who once journeyed with us have since lost their way And instead of being fruitful, their spiritual lives have withered. We've all got a front stage life and we've got a backstage life. You see, in the context of church, our front stage is our ministry. I know that so many of you here today are involved in ministry in one sort or another. It's where other people observe us. It's when we are in the spotlight, when we are under the gaze of other people. The front stage part of our life is all about us doing. But we've also got a backstage life. And the two are very much connected. The backstage is connected to the front stage. And if we neglect the backstage, eventually the front stage will fall apart. The backstage is private. It's usually messy. The audience isn't allowed there. Backstage has no spotlights. But if the front stage is all about doing, the backstage is all about being. And you know what? Whenever you get a bunch of pastors all together, that doesn't sound right, does it? Bunch of pastors. What's what's the um, collective noun for pastors? A a gaggle. A preach. Any other options? A herd? That's what you were thinking, wasn't it? Okay, let's call them a group. When you've got this group of pastors together, they never seem to have 
backstage life conversations. Now, I've been a pastor for 31 years. And not on one occasion can I remember a casual backstage life conversation with another group of pastors. The conversations have almost always been front stage conversations. Pastors will speak freely about church attendance, about strategy, services, vision, values, volunteers, staff, evangelism, finance. But backstage conversations don't come naturally to any one of us. It feels all a little bit risky, doesn't it? Much easier to limit the conversations that you have with other people to front stage. And you don't need to be a pastor to do this. It's something that we all do. Whoever you are, whatever your background, whatever your ministry, we tend to do that. We don't like those backstage conversations. Much, much easier to talk about church or ministry or music or life in general than to talk about issues concerning spiritual health. And the one lesson that I'm certainly learning with age, as, as the years go by, I'm, I'm learning this more and more, that is the key to the Christian life is found very much in the backstage. And that's exactly what Jesus taught because he said, out of the fullness of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. <coughs> the private part of our lives will empower the, the public part. So let me ask again this morning, how is it with your soul? He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Life can drain us. And as Christians, we can sometimes go through the motions of singing the great songs of worship on a Sunday morning. We can go through the motions of serving Jesus. But maybe, maybe that some of us are just falling apart on the inside. Our heart isn't in it any longer. It's not like it used to be. Something is missing. We find ourselves with far less joy and far more frustration. Far less compassion and far more cynicism. For some of us, it's because of the anxieties and the trials and the difficulties of life, the hardship, the stuff that goes wrong, the financial worries, the health concerns, the employment blues, the relationship breakdowns. And all these things seem to attack our peace and our sense of well-being from the outside. And when you then add to that our own insecurities, our own brokenness, the baggage that we have from many years gone by. It can be a recipe for an empty tank and the need for some mid-race adjustments and refueling. David continues, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And I think this uh, metaphor of a valley is, is, is an amazing metaphor. And that may, this morning, express your current position. A valley is enclosed. It's hemmed in. You might feel enclosed. You might feel hemmed in with your circumstances. You may feel overwhelmed by mountainous difficulties. And sometimes our valley can be caused through other people. Sometimes it's caused through our own 
decisions. Do you remember Joseph, the great story in Genesis, the guy with the amazing technical dream court, to use the title from uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, musical. His brother sold him into slavery. He was then accused of, um, of attempted rape. He was imprisoned. Whilst in prison, he was asked to interpret Pharaoh's dream of seven cows, large and healthy, being eaten by seven other cows, scrawny and gaunt. The interpretation was that there were coming seven years of harvest, and these would be followed by seven years of famine. And I suppose we could say that Joseph was there given by God a word of supernatural knowledge. But it wasn't only supernatural knowledge that Joseph was given, he was also given a word of supernatural wisdom. He wasn't only told what the dream meant, but he was also told with what the Egyptians then needed to do afterwards. You see, knowledge is worthless unless you have God's wisdom to, do, to know what to do with that knowledge. As somebody once put it this way, knowledge is knowing that the tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. And I think there's a good definition there of the, of the difference between knowledge and wisdom. You see, God told him that the Egyptians needed to store up seven, in the seven years of plenty to take them through the seven years of famine. So you are probably asking, well, Steve, what's this got to do with anything this morning? And I would say that it's a little bit just like those Egyptians who needed to store up in the good times, in readiness for the times of famine, it is so, 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 so important for us also, spiritually speaking, to store up in the good times because inevitable times of trial and struggle will come our way sooner or later, times when we experience those valleys. Valleys can be times of uh, spiritual growth as well. There are some things that we can learn in a valley experience that we could never learn in any other way. Five facts about valleys. Firstly, valleys are inevitable. Jesus promised that we would encounter valley experiences in our lives in this world. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus says, In this world you will have trouble. It's funny, not many people put that on fridge magnets and stick it to their fridges. It's not one of those great verses where you can sort of say, yes, it's from, from the Bible. It's Jesus who said this. In the world you will have trouble, take, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You see, to experience a valley, and many Christians get this wrong, they, they, they somehow fear that they're stood out of sight of God's will or that God is hard on them for some reason. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that at all. The very fact that you're in a valley doesn't mean that God is against you. Secondly, valleys are unpredictable. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. It may be a mountaintop experience. It may be the lush meadows, green meadows, it may be the still waters, but it also may be a valley. Valleys are impartial. 
Jesus said that it rains on the just and on the unjust. And the sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous in Matthew chapter 5. Valleys are temporary. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 speaks of a, a season of suffering. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we read of there being a time for all things. And that verse that we love quoting in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 about God uh, knows how much we can handle and will provide a way of escape from it. Fifthly, valleys are for building faith. James in his first chapter tells us to count it pure joy when you experience trials of many kinds. Valleys, in other words, because... Why are we to do that? Because God is making us more like Jesus through this. That he is making us stronger in our faith and deeper in our understanding. The, the first part of Psalm 23 is all about green pastures, all about still waters and paths of righteousness. But we know that life is not just about green pastures and quiet waters because we know that in our lives there are also those dark valleys and following our shepherd Jesus it will mean that there will be times when we are faced with difficulty and David calls this the valley of the shadow of death why not call it the valley of death why does he need to call it the valley of the shadow of death the answer I believe to that is that you only get shadows where there is light. And in this valley, whatever this valley is, we know that we have the good shepherd with us, the one who is the light of the world. He is with us every step of the way. It was uh, one of the founders of the United States, Benjamin Franklin, who once said there are only two certainties in life, death and taxes. And without being too morbid about this this morning, I would say that it's also true for us to say that death casts a dark shadow over our lives. And the older one gets, the more one recognizes this lengthening shadow. But for a Christian, death is a shadow. No one, no one is afraid of a shadow. A shadow can't stop us from walking forward. A shadow of a dog doesn't bite. A shadow of a sword can't kill. And the shadow of death can't destroy us. We only face a shadow of death because Jesus took the reality of death in our place. We used to sing a great song here in this church some years back. It says, amazing love or what sacrifice the Son of God given for me. My debt he pays and my death he dies that I might live. There are many dark valleys that we can experience in our world. But David says, I will fear no evil. Why is that? Because the shepherd is with him. And the shepherd's presence did not banish or eliminate the presence of evil. The shepherd's presence only eliminated the fear of evil. Not the presence of evil, only the fear of evil. Evil was still there. Wild animals still might have been lurking in the bushes, but the sheep were protected by the shepherd. I suppose it's a little bit like a, a little boy 
who has been terribly bullied by school thugs. He was fearful. But everything changed when his older cousin moved into the area and starts attending the same school. His cousin, who's a karate champion, he's tough, he's streetwise. No one is going to bully that little kid any longer. There may be evil still there, but the fear of evil has gone. And David writes, For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David also assures us that we will walk through. What an important word that is, this valley. It's not a valley that will defeat us. It's not a valley which is our final destination, but we will walk through it. And then we come just to this last part of Psalm 23, verse 5. We find there the, the metaphor of a valley changing to a feast. And uh, David seems to have finished talking about the sheep and the shepherds and the grassy meadows and, uh, and the dark valleys. And now he is telling us that one day that God is going to invite us to a feast and that we will be honoured amongst those who did their, did their best to dishonour us in this life. And we will experience God's goodness and his mercy throughout our lives. And one day we will dwell in his house forever. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We're nearly through on time. So let me just sort of come into land with this. In the Old Testament, there is a great story. It's one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible. It's a story of a man called Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the crippled son of King David's best friend, Jonathan. And when Jonathan's household heard that both Jonathan and his father, King Saul, had been killed in battle, they fled. And the reason they fled is because they believed that the king-in-waiting David would soon be around to kill off the rest of the remaining family because that is what kings did in those days. Slaughter. Just in case there would be any future uprising. And on the way out of the house, the nurse who tended for five-year-old Mephibosheth dropped him and he became crippled. And throughout his life, he lived in obscurity, fearing that someone might tell the king, the new king, David, of his presence. Well, someone did, not in spite, but in response to David's heartfelt question of, is there anyone else in the line of, 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 of Jonathan? And um, instead of uh, David arranging the murder of Mephibosheth, he called for Mephibosheth to come into his palace. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. And that's where we're going to finish this morning. In 2 Samuel, chapter 9, verse 7. Don't be afraid, David said to him. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you will always eat at my table. I tell you what, when I read that, I get goosebumps just to read that line. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant 
that you should notice a dead dog like me. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, You a servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Just in case we miss this, we are told on three separate occasions that Mephibosheth would eat at the king's table like one of the king's sons. Maybe the writer of 2 Samuel couldn't even believe it himself and he had to write it down three times because he couldn't believe what he was writing. This guy who describes himself as a dead dog, he is a man who had nothing to bring to the party, no skill, no benefit, no advantage to David. He was a cripple. He was probably not a man with an education, without royal decorum, no skill as a soldier in the battlefields. And yet, amazingly, he is invited to eat at the king's table. Wow. Just wow. The Bible has a word for what has just happened there. You know that word, don't you? It's the word grace. And this morning... Isn't it wonderful to know that we are all Mephibosheths? We are all Mephibosheths. You might not be able to say it, but you are. (laughs) We have a seat at the king's table. We deserve nothing. But it is a table that has been prepared for us in the presence of our enemies. And one day our enemies will acknowledge the Father's love to us. There will be no place for gloating in our part. Because every advantage that we have received has been from the gracious hand of God whose goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives. And just as Mephibosheth dwelt in the house of the king, for the remainder of his life, we too shall dwell in his house for all of eternity. Wow. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Would you stand, please? Let's, let's pray, and Tim and guys, if you'd like to come back, thank you. Dear Lord, we thank you so much that you are our shepherd. We thank you, Lord, for your love and your protection. We thank you that your desire for us is to bring us through into the best places, the lush green meadows and the quiet waters. We thank you, Lord, that your desire for us is to walk in paths of righteousness. Lord, we also thank you that you will not leave us or forsake us in those times when we experience dark valleys. And Lord, my guess is this morning that there will be people in this building. That is the way that they would explain what they're going through just now. 
It's the valley of the shadow of death. I just pray, Father, for those who are experiencing just darkness and places where they're experiencing no hope whatsoever. I pray, dear Lord, that you will come and meet with them in this place today. Dear Lord, we thank you that not even death can scare us. And the reason is that you are there, the light of the world. Thank you, Lord, that you have defeated death. And Lord, we thank you also that you have also invited us to the feast. The King's Feast, the marriage feast of the Lamb, that one day that we will rejoice with you. Not because of anything in us. Not because of our own abilities. It's unearned. It's undeserved. It's unwarranted. It's your grace. And Lord, we just want to praise you and thank you for all that you have done and are doing. And I just pray now, Lord, that those in this place today who are experiencing those, those, those valleys where they feel that you're not there, Lord, not experienced you for a, a long time, perhaps, that you will just come now and bring your peace and your consolation and your restoration, Lord, I pray.